This is a very serious movie podcast by two guys who used to date and now they don't. Today's theme is farting corpses. <laughs> my name's Ryan Whedon. My name's Matt Fisher. And I am proud to put my name on this podcast. You know, this is our 80th episode. We do one a week and like television, sometimes it takes a season or two to really get going. Uh-huh. It can take sometimes like a hundred episodes before you get to that like nice sweet spot where like the show becomes its own. Uh-huh. I feel like we, this is like really where we're coming to our own. <laughs> sure. I had a moment today while I was doing some research and uh, you know that talking head song once in a lifetime uh-huh. and the lyric. Uh, and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? I had that, but it, it, you know, looking back, it seems natural it seems like this was naturally where we were going this is just everything that x-rated is <laughs> it's serious art it's art done seriously there's toilet humor in it like it's, if those are the three pillars holding up our house <laughs> it's faharty <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's funny i i can't remember how we came across the idea of this well my theory has always been that like secretly you wanted to do this from like episode three <laughs> and you've just been like waiting for the right time and just you know six weeks ago or whenever you pitched it to me you're like wouldn't it be funny if we did farting corpses ha 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 and like you eyeballed me for a response and i'm like that's not the bad idea we've even got a drink to go along with today's movies yeah wh- what's this called again it's called a corpse reviver number two why is that number two well, you'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> oh, really? No. Oh. <laughs> ah. <laughs> there's, I don't know, there's a Corpse Reviver number one that has uh, apple brandy and some other ingredients that just doesn't sound... It sounds sound, like some white nonsense. It doesn't sound appetizing. Yeah. This one is number two. It's got equal parts gin, coqui americano, lemon juice, and Cointreau with a little bit of absinthe in there. Even though I saw you pour in the gin, it's not a ginny drink. I wouldn't put this in the category of uh, gin and tonic or a mar- gin martini or, or a gin fizz or, or anything like that. Yeah. Like this, this tastes more like a fruity cocktail. So this sort of combination of stuff seems to bring out the juniper berries and mm-hmm. hide the pine needles. Yeah, and it's it's a hangover cocktail, one that's supposed to revive your corpse from a heavy night of drinking before. And uh, I can see that it's got a little bit of a punch in the face, kind of wakes you up. Definitely. I could also drink this during brunch. Like, it's a tasty beverage. Mm -hmm. One that I could have with a meal very easily. It's got some tartness, some sweetness, Mm -hmm. a little bit of that absinthe in there, too. Tart would would be good. Just sort of sparkles with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely could wake up a a dead body. Mm -hmm. So, while there are other podcasts that are better than ours... I don't think there are many that drink as fine as cocktails uh, as we do. We may be talking about farting corpses today, but we're drinking some some primo cocktails. I mean, we do spritzes. We do a lot of rosé. We'll do cheap beer from time to time. But like when we spring for it, we do some pretty nice cocktails. I agree. Cheers to us. I actually have a... Uh, I went to bartending college for two weeks after I graduated from regular college. Actually, it was just one week. I doubled up. Because your degree in French literature, you quickly learned, was unemployable. <laughs> yeah, like that summer. You're just... like, watch out, job market. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Whedon's on the town. <laughs> Two months later, I need to go back to school. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, What's the quickest, cheapest degree? <laughs> yeah, it was like a hundred bucks or something for a week of classes. But I learned some things there. So, and it's given you eighteen years of livable wages. <laughs> yeah, somehow that has been my my career. I was gonna say, if you wrote on your French literate laurels, you'd be one of these people that I step over every morning. <laughs> I actually filtered uh, this drink through my degree today, <laughs> so that lends a nice, gets that those lemon pulp out of there. At least it's good for something. Yeah. You also used it to, like, peel the orange rind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I wrapped the orange in it and threw it away, so. <laughs> sort of a poetic uh, existential justice there. I, I was going to say, orange in a degree sounds like a Balzac novel or something. It is. Oh. Yeah. All right, question for you. Why is it Balzac and not Balza? Like, why is the C not silent? Because in French, the only consonants you pronounce at the end of words are C, R, F, and L. Careful. <gasps> wow. Yeah. God, good acronyms just solve all problems. Mm-hmm. Good acronyms solve all problems. GASAP. <laughs> 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 no, a friend of mine who is he's a PhD in some sort of field of biology, I don't know. He was like given a presentation and named this like something that cells do. I don't know. He's a biologist, right? Well, you tell me. Okay. Uh but he he named this like process after his dog. Okay. And, like, in the slide during his presentation, he put a picture of his dog with, like, the dog's name up there and, like, put the acronym up there. Mm. But uh, I texted that to a doctor friend of mine. She was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, A, there's so many things in science that, like, you need acronyms to, like, remember everything. And then she also goes, also, scientists love pets, our pets, because they substitute for real human relationships. (laughs) I'm like, hmm. That seems fair. I can see that. Yeah. Science is science is hard and lonely. If movies have taught me anything, it involves lab coats and glasses and a clipboard. That's why David Cronenberg in uh, The Fly, he hated the idea of the sexless geek scientist. So he wanted a super virile scientist, one with emotion. So like Jeff Goldblum knew how to play piano, was very eloquent, very charming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's why he cast... Uh, Jeff Goldblum is a scientist because he, he wanted to go directly against the grain of the, the sexless geek scientist. I think Jeff Goldblum recently got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, cool. And there's a picture of him like posing next to it like he does in Jurassic Park with his shirt all like, spread open. If you don't know Jurassic Park, you don't know shit. Jeff Goldblum's doing celebrity right. Like <laughs> He's just embracing all those things. Like I think he realizes how silly that whole thing is and it's kind of fun jeff goldblum strikes me as the type of person like if you were to sit me down with him like we're sitting across from each other on our proper toilets Mm -hmm. um (laughs) i don't even feel like i need to ask him a question i could just bring up a topic and he could just start talking yeah i could just be like uh jazz and he could be like oh well jazz of course he just seems super fascinating i think that would be a lot of fun if that happened. I just asked that he'd not use my bidet. At least don't change your settings. Yeah, that's fine. You can use it. Just don't. I've got to calibrate it properly. You had to like go in with like a screwdriver 
to get like the, the temperature up to scalding and the pressure up to like power wash. And yeah, now it's like, you know, when you're not here, I use it to like clean my dinnerware. <laughs> it's like uh, heat up the apartment if you need to just spray some of that. Yeah, it's, it's a little chilly. So I just run the bidet when you're gone. <laughs> Come on, we're we're not here to talk about butt we're not here washing. To talk about toilets. We're here to talk about farting corpses. That's what we came here today to talk about. All right? How can I get so wildly off course? <laughs> yes, the two movies in question today are the Three Burials of Melchiada Estrada and Swiss Army Man. <laughs> and can I just say? These paired together very well. They honestly, they really did. I'm kind of shocked at how well they went together. There were other farting corpse movies that didn't make the cut. Uh, Tideland. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's. <sighs> Fuck that movie. <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's two. I mean, I mean, there's other movies where like a cadaver is sort of a character in the movie, but these ones like the cadaver's really a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the movie. Uh, like first build, in, <laughs> yeah. <in> some sometimes. <laughs> Which one did you want to start with today? Uh, I want to start with the Three Burials, Three Burials of Melchiorre's Estrada from 2005, directed. directed and starring Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, written by the guy who wrote 21 Grams, Guillermo Ar- Ar- Ariaga. Yeah, he, he's written a bunch of uh, Inorito films, right? So it's like 21 Grams, uh, Babel or Babel. Mm-hmm. Amores Peros. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we have sort of a similar thing going on there with like a broken timeline. Yeah. In, in this movie. They don't really make it super obvious. Like you kind of have to wait a while. Like there's nothing directorially that makes you think that this is a broken timeline or, mm-hmm. or told in a non-chronological order. You basically just have to see the actions play out before you realize that. Yeah. So I don't want to like poke a hole in our theme here. I don't remember the corpse farting in Three Burials. Listen, I don't think that the corpse literally farts in this movie, but I think uh, metaphorically it farts. I think it's safe to assume that at some point that corpse farted. So you didn't hear it fart? We don't hear it fart. We do hear it smell. So I wasn't crazy, like, because I was looking for it. No, me too, me too. I, I remember it as a, a moment when it actually, like, makes a farty noise. It did not happen. Okay. They give this corpse a little more dignity. But they also, you know, shove a hose and spray a bunch of antifreeze in its mouth. So it's like, you know, they I was gonna set say it they, on fire they, at one point. I was going to say they, they, they treat it with more dignity by, like, covering it with, like, hard grain alcohol and lighting it on fire. Yeah, so, you know... It's a balancing act, I guess. But, I mean, we'll get back to why I think this corpse metaphorically farts when we get to Swiss Army Man. Okay. So, the three burials, and depending on what source you look at online, it's either called Three Burials or The Three Burials of Melchiata's Estrada. Right. But it's definitely the more dour of the two movies that we watched today, but not totally separate in theme. Tommy Lee Jones strikes me almost like a real-life cowboy. I feel like he got invested in this movie because it really, like, honestly reflected his values. I could see that. You know, he he really speaks Spanish. 
which we know from Men in Black. But, you know, he really rides a horse. Right. It almost looks like he gets dragged behind a horse at some point. Like, yeah. whatever stunt work was done there was, was primo. But Tommy Lee Jones is master of, like, the dryness. In Men in Black, he's got that dry wit down. I don't know when the last time you saw it was. But, you know, Will Smith. 97. <laughs> uh, and you should just do a drop here but it's like will smith is like uh and i don't want nobody calling me son or kid or sport or nothing like that cool cool whatever you say slick his delivery is just no nonsense doesn't blink and it's the same delivery that like he gives for the most part here like there's just no bullshit with tommy lee jones even when there is bullshit like he just gives it to you straight yeah and this movie is kind of like that like this is a movie really roughly about how like a man's word is his bond. Like, a man is only as good as his word. There's a little bit of a vengeance storyline going on, too, but it's more of a poetic vengeance, I would say. Yeah, because Melchiadas was... Tommy Lee Jones is, is Pete Perkins, is the character's name. Uh, Melchiadas is, is Pete Perkins' friend. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they have a bond, a, a brotherly sort of camaraderie relationship. Yeah. And Melchiadas is... Shot down in a misunderstanding, but... So stupid. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have some notes here on that this is like a day in the life of an ICE agent. <laughs> I did not realize how pertinent this movie, like timely this movie is until I turned it on and like the first thing you see is Border Patrol agents rolling up in a, in a Jeep and it's just like, oh, fuck. Yeah, this is going on right now. So like with cops... I subscribe to, like, the William Friedkin theory that there are no more, like, racist cops than there are racist architects or racist ice cream men. It's just that... They have a gun. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, racist architects aren't put in a position to kill African Americans with impunity the same way (laughs) that cops are. And that architects don't operate on the same level of adrenaline either, you know. Whereas with... Ice agents, I feel like it kind of attracts racists. Oh, like, yeah. That's a draw for them. Barry Pepper, uh, Mike Norton, mm-hmm. or Mike Norton's the character's name, Barry Pepper's the actor. A excellent casting. Like, uh, Barry Pepper's been in a lot of stuff, but like he always kind of looks like the tightly wound asshole that's like ready to kill someone. He's just got one of those faces. He looks like an asshole ready to fight. Uh huh. In any, any moment. Like, if he walked into the bar regardless of how nice he was to me, I'd be like, I'm keeping my eye on you just because mm-hmm. he looks that way. And that's shitty to say, but it's true. He's got one of those faces. Good for him for allowing himself to be cast that way. You know, that's what makes a good character actor in a lot of ways is like recognizing that you have a certain type of face and you're going to get cast in these certain type of roles. So just own it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Like he's not a leading man and that's totally cool. Yeah. He's actually really great in this movie, I thought. Oh yeah, like cuz he owns it. Like there's no flinching of of him being like the racist border patrol agent. Totally, yeah. And he's married to Luann's the character's name, but uh January Jones who people might know best as uh Don Draper's wife in Mad Men. Oh, okay. Or Emma Frost in X-Men First Class where she was terrible. <laughs> I actually didn't like her character this time around. I actually felt like that whole storyline was really superfluous. Mm. I think you could make the same movie without her Mm -hmm. and it would still be good. Mm -hmm. Like it gives Melissa Leo, who plays Rachel, Rachel, the uh, waitress uh, slash town slut, uh, something a little bit more to do. 
But I don't think she needs it. I think that you could have just given Melissa Leo's character something to do other than recruit her. But then Mike would have been single. Like, I think he, he could kind of, be. Oh, really? Yeah. I think him having a wife, while uh, Luann didn't need necessarily maybe as much screen time as she got, there's that scene where Mike's like, what's for dinner, Luann? And then... As he's picking his toes with a knife. <sighs> So gross. This movie's so visceral in oh, a lot of ways. Oh, this movie gets real. Luann, what's for dinner? Stuffed zucchini and broccoli. That's it? Have you looked at the tires? I'm on a diet. Real quick aside, this movie does a really good job of showing and not telling. Yeah. Because January Jones, not fat. No. Not by any measure. But she sees her neighbors. Like, there's a couple scenes where she's looking at her neighbors as they waddle around. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want to get like that. Exactly. And we see what she sees. And so we know where this, like, I'm on a diet thing or this fear of getting fat thing is stemming from. Like, sure. All the people who live here are fat. Yeah. I don't want to do that. (laughs) So Mike waddles over and he's like, you're not fat. You're still my hot mama or whatever. And then, like, has sex with her, like, while she's cutting up vegetables. Watching some stupid soap opera. (laughs) And I was like, God, Mike fucks his wife the way I masturbate. Like, see something like, eh, what the hell? Yeah, it's one of the most unsexy sex scenes I've ever seen. Like, just lifts up her jean skirt a little bit. And she just leans over, too. She's just like, okay. She's like, I'll just put the knife down. (laughs) I thought she kept peeling. (laughs) It's like that Joan Rivers thing where she's like, I love doggy style because then you can oh, fuck can, me while I'm doing yeah, the ironing. I can tack or I can text. <laughs> I can check Twitter. <laughs> Wait, should we give a quick synopsis of this movie? It's pretty pretty quick. I mean, if we want to do the broad strokes, which because the, the, the movie's told non-sequentially, like this isn't the way the audience sees it. But, but the story is just that Mike kills Melchiatas accidentally, buries him. Well, he kills him on purpose. What do you think? Well, he's shooting at him. Yeah, but I thought he was just shooting because he was being shot at, and he wasn't really aiming at anything. His motivations were not sound. Okay. Maybe like, he was aiming at him. That's true. Yeah, like he, he, he was aiming for Melchiadas with the intent of killing him, but when he goes over to Melchiadas... He sees that wounded coyote. Right. So he realizes like, that Melchiatus was shooting at that rather than at him. Right. And so he quickly buries Melchiatus. That's A, the first burial. First bar- burial number one. It's discovered one. by border agents who exhume the body, bring him in. He gets processed, but since nobody knows him because he's a legal immigrant, he just gets like a county burial, which is very sad. They put a fucking cross on his grave that says Melchiatus in Mexico because they don't know his last name. They just know where he's from, which is... Oh, yeah, I know. That's the worst. That's so dehumanizing. That's terrible. And so then Tommy Lee Jones' character, who goes by the name of Pete, finds out about this, pressures the sheriff to investigate, being like, I think one of your Boulder Patrol agents shot him. The sheriff is not interested in investigating this. He's like, he's just some illegal immigrant. I don't want to deal. He uses a word I'm not going to say. You're not his family. I don't have to notify you about a goddamn thing. He was a wetback. And so Tommy Lee Jones decides, I'm going to take this into my own hands. Mm-hmm. And he makes Mike come with him. They dig up Melchiades and uh, bring him back to where Melchiades said he was from because Melchiades made Pete promise that he would take him back when he dies. Yeah, so th- there's a scene, because Tommy Lee Jones is just 
a rancher, basically. Yeah. Like, he's not a law enforcement agent. He has no sway over any of the law enforcement in his, in his town, other than it's a small town and everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And Melchiatis is, is a good friend, perhaps his best friend. Melchiatis gave him a horse. Like, that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> and at some point, there's a scene where Melchiatis is showing pictures of his wife, tells him, you know, the town that he's from, and asks him, you know, should I pass away? I want to be buried in my town of Jimenez. And it's like he knows he's going to die before Pete at that point. Like, you just... Yeah, because it, it's not like Pete's asking Melchiatis to do the same. Yeah. It's something like, mm. I'm probably going to die over here, and it's probably going to be because some idiot shot shoots me. Yeah. And it's like, that really hit hard for me this time around, because it's like, is that how people feel that way on this side of the border that are immigrants? Are they worried all the time? They that, just live in fear. Yeah, that they could just be shot. And in case of that, at any moment, can you please just like, here's what I want to happen to me. Like, that is so sad. This is the type of movie that like, if if it were to be released today, Trump would be like, Tommy Lee Jones made the worst <laughs> movie. Melchiatis didn't rape a single person. He didn't deal drugs to any children. Totally unbelievable. Very unfair to uh, white Americans working very hard. Ranching just fine without the help of Mexicans. <laughs> Meanwhile, our hard border agents are shown as villains in the movie. I'll never watch a Tommy Lee Jones movie again. <laughs> the Fugitive, I love it. A hardworking federal agent just doing his job. <laughs> If Harrison Ford had nothing to fear, he should have just turned himself in. <laughs> Trump watches The Fugitive like we watch Wile E. Coyote. Like, oh, we might get him this time. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. It was so well, hard to watch. Because at some point, like, Pete, Tommy Lee Jones, gets some ladies. Like, they go off to, like, have, like, a yeah, little and it's, afternoon. It's such a sweet scene, too, because he has to convince Melchiatis to come. Melchiatis is like, I do not want to go into town. I am not safe there. This is a bad idea. And he's like... It's fine. Pete's yeah. like, you'll be fine. Trust me. Can I see some photo ID, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and they go and they pick up Melissa Leo, whose name is Rachel. And uh, they actually pick up uh, Mike's wife. Luann. Luann. And they go and have a sex scene in the in a hotel. And it's very sweet. Well, Pete and Rachel have it like a sex scene. Right. But... Luann and oh, Melchiatis. I didn't imply there was an orgy. <laughs> yeah. Melchiatis and Luann, like, go to, the, like, their own hotel room, and Melchiatis is far too modest yeah. to just have sex with some strange gringo. Melchiatis is no rapist. Like, he just would prefer to have no part of this. Yeah. And, it, it, I mean, it's sort of sweet, like, because he, he's, he's bashful about it. Like, he's not, like, angry or upset or, you know, anything like that. Like, he's just, like you know, bashful like a little boy would be. Yeah. And she sort of opens the door. She's sort of like, it's okay. Like, this, we should be having fun. Yeah. Well, because, like, she's like, well, let's just watch TV, and then it's all porno. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got the impression they ended up having sex eventually. Did oh, you? I did not get that impression, but oh, okay. I could, I could see why it's there. Yeah. yeah. I got the impression that maybe they did, and it was like, 
just sort of sweet and sloppy. Yeah, yeah. like quick and like okay, we can whatever. Yeah. So, but maybe not. I mean, it's it's ambiguous. It's left up to. But but the point is definitely is that he was not like, oh, I cannot wait to fuck this white girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's nothing about Melchiatus that makes me think that he's bringing drugs. He's bringing crime. But some of them might be good. All right. <laughs> no, he's there to work. He's there to make some money. Yeah, like he's got like a little goat farm. Yeah. And like, yeah, he's got a little plot of land and he, I mean, I don't know if he's perfectly happy with it, but like, he's definitely not like making any waves. Yeah. Which makes it all the more like tragic, his death. It's just, it's very stupid, very sad. And even Mike kind of knows how stupid it is, but Mike feels protected because Mike feels like he was just doing his job kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, Mike definitely feels bad because uh luann like wants to go shopping at the mall and like mike just stays back in the truck and like he kind of has like the the flashback and like you know the the image of the blood on his hands and stuff like that but he also feels that he'll get away with he's got the guilt of the deed but he's not fearing repercussions necessarily yeah meanwhile pete's like you guys got to solve this crime right pete knows something's up that that he, he was, you know, shot by a law enforcement agent. Yeah. They find some shell casings nearby that belong to a Border Patrol agent, probably. And it's just like... And then I think uh, Rachel actually overhears one of the Border Patrol agents talking to the sheriff, being like, well, this was definitely this guy. The, the sheriff, played by Dwight Yoakam, who is a piece of shit. Uh, I mean... I'm sure he's a perfectly fine human being, but he plays a piece of shit in, like, every role he plays. <laughs> he was the abusive husband in Sling Blade. Right. Uh, he was the cowardly criminal in Panic Room. I don't know. Personally, I have a theory that, like, if you only play heroes in movies, that means you're deeply insecure. Oh, totally. Whereas if you play shitbags and scoundrels, you're probably an all right person. Yeah. Paul Newman, like, literally only played villains. And, like, what did he do in his off time? Like raise money for charity like that's all he did he's comfortable yeah mm-hmm. sheriff won't do anything so pete's like i'm taking matters in my own hands and so he goes and grabs mike and kidnaps him kidnaps him tapes luann to the his, the easy boy <laughs> turns on the tv so or she has lazy boy t- he's lazy boy lazy yeah. boy easy boy is my <laughs> grinder handle <laughs> Stra- yeah, tapes are down. Duct tape are down to the lazy boy. Funny enough, the picture is me in an easy boy, lazy boy, duct taped up to it. Yeah. Recliner feet yeah. up. <laughs> Turns on the TV for her so she has something to watch. Puts a blanket on her because it might get cold. Yeah. He's a thoughtful kidnapper. Yeah, you know, his brand of vigilante justice is to really, you know... Show justice to, to those who inflicted the harm to begin with. Right. Like, he's got no beef with Luann. He just can't have, can't her, have con- her running her mouth off. Sure, 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 sure. So the first two burials happen mm, within the first half hour or so. Pretty quick, yeah. You know, as I was saying earlier, this is a movie about, like, how a man is only as good as his word. Which, uh, you know, don't make, don't take my word for anything. <laughs> like, if you're like, bury me where my wife and children are and and i would say yes and then not do it <laughs> like wherever he dies is fine my my mindset would be like he'll never know fair enough i mean i won't yeah you, you'll be dead i'll be a corpse 
A bloated farting corpse? Yeah, you'll be super farty, no doubt. <laughs> I mean, I'm farty in real life, so while no. I'm alive, I can't imagine how farty I'd be when I'm a corpse. No, I, I, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> anyway, enough about my farting corpse. Let's talk about the farting corpse in this movie. So this brings us on like our like odyssey, really, mm-hmm. chapter. This chapter's uh, called The Journey. Yeah. By the way, I guess we should mention there's title cards throughout the movie, and they're in uh, English and Spanish, which is nice. It's sort of like they're equals. One of the reasons that I think that Pete Perkins is reflective of, of Tommy Lee Jones as a person is that if one of Tommy Lee Jones's good friends actually asked this task of him, I think he himself as a human being would do it. Sure. I mean, which maybe why he's like, not only do I want to act in this, I want to direct it. Like, he felt that seriously about it. And it also is uh, reflective of the values of the Western genre. Because, like... This might be our first Western this, on the I podcast. I think this is our first Western. Yeah. And, like, one of the themes of the Western genre is sort of this idea of not necessarily justice that is linked to, say, a government. But there is just, like, this own sort of personal justice that occurs out in the west you know outside of certain legislative branches kind yeah, of thing. yeah part of like american western specifically is it sort of builds on the legend of the rugged individual operating outside the confines of a government yeah and this plays really well into that because the local government isn't dealing justice out to those right. who did wrong in fact the government is responsible in yeah. a lot of ways, like it's yeah. a government agent who did the wrong. And they just want to avoid trouble, quote unquote, mm-hmm. meaning from higher ups. And so they're just willing to say like, oh, well, this is an illegal immigrant. Let's brush it under the table. Meaning like this isn't a real person. So fuck them mm-hmm. is another way of saying it. Yeah. And that's not right. Right. And Pete won't stand by that. He won't. No. And I think that's great. We see the lengths that Pete goes through and drags sometimes literally Mike into I mean, Melchiata's is dead. Like, he's... D-E-D dead. He's basically dead from the beginning of the movie. (laughs) At some point, a good amount into their journey, they come across a blind guy on, like, a plot of land. Right. Like, somewhere around the Mexican border in Texas or on, on some side... As I've learned in the past couple of years, it's not always clear where the border is in Texas and in, in Mexico. Yeah. The blind guy's played by Levon Helm, who is the drummer and sometimes singer of the band. And that scene, it's sort of heart-wrenching in its unheart-wrenchingness. Because Tommy Lee Jones comes across him. I don't speak Spanish. What do you want? Our friends want some water for our horses. Well, help yourself, man. Smells like something dead around here. I killed a deer a couple days ago, starting to turn. Yeah. Well, you better throw it away. It's rotten. I want to keep the hide. You got any salt I could use to cure it? No, son. I barely got enough salt to put on the dinner table. You got any alcohol or anything like that? I got a jug of antifreeze. Would that work? So... Tommy Lee Jones, like, shoves, like, a tube of antifreeze down his mouth. In his friend's corpse's mouth and puts a bunch of antifreeze in there to preserve his body. Yeah. Blind guy, who I think, like, is just credited as, like, man with radio. Gives him some food, some stew or something like that, and 
Tommy Lee Jones asks him, like, how do you survive out here? He goes, well, you know, my son comes up from time to time, brings me food, blah, 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 blah. And as they're leaving, the man said, oh, can I ask you a favor? I'd like to ask you a favor. Anything you want. I wanted to ask you if you can shoot me. My son ain't coming back. Oh, he'll come back. No, he told me he had cancer. And he told me to go back to town with him. But I don't want to go. I've always lived here. Well, we can't do it. I don't want to offend God by killing myself. It's a problem. We don't want to offend God either. And the way that Pete handles the situation, like, there's there's no moment where I think that he's really mulling it over Mm -hmm. or that he's wavering or could be convinced. He's like, no. And... That's the sort of uh, straight shooting buck stops here mentality that I think resonates a lot with American lore. Mm-hmm. The sort of John Wayne sort of, you know, unfaltering mentality. Just like a code of ethics that you will not budge on. Yeah, you know. And I don't know, it, it, it was a little heartbreaking for me watching it because it didn't seem like Tommy Lee Jones even was considering a yes answer. I didn't remember that from when I watched this previously. And that scene really kind of stuck with me this time. I mean, it's it's interesting that you talk about the idea of this like lone cowboy with his own set of rules and like a solid, you know, American idea of what justice is, da 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 da. Because uh it is kind of weird what he's doing. He's kidnapped somebody to carry a corpse to what he thinks is its proper burial place. Like, that's fucking weird. There is sort of like a moral transgression because, like, Tommy Lee Jones kind of seems like a straight shooter up until a point. Mm -hmm. He seems like he he had, like, a switch flips where he just can't take it anymore. There's nothing about his character that would make me think that he would do anything illegal up until he finds out that the sheriff isn't going to, like, pursue this any further. Yeah. He just has to take justice in his own hands at that point. Yeah, and at that point, like, he kind of, like... He becomes a villain, but it's sort of a gray area. I never feel like he's the bad guy. Like, it's what he's doing seems like the right thing. I'm just saying it's weird. It plays into that sense that, like, you know, a man's as good as his word, and that's, like, above any law, almost. Mm -hmm. Like, he made a promise, and Melchiatas was struck down wrongfully. And so he's bringing the person who did this injustice with him in order to like make justice yeah and even before like he makes uh mike dig up the corpse he takes him to melchiata's house melchiata's lived here that was his bed kept his clothes right over there that was his plate that was his cup you didn't just kill somebody that you can walk away from because, you know, you had a, a job where you, you know, were supposed to protect this border. Like you killed a human being who lived here and had things and had dreams and hopes and all of that. And Which really plays into like why I feel like this movie would be so radical if it was released today. Like the right would have just like 
their minds would explode at this movie being released in 2018. Totally. It's like the movie's 13 years old, but like there's nothing about it that seems dated. Yeah. And the subject matter is even more timely than it was 13 years ago. It's funny how that works. Like I liked it when I saw it maybe 10 years ago for the first time, but like now it resonates even more. Yeah. For sure. And how these border agents really don't view people coming to the country as human beings. Yeah. And Tommy Lee Jones, like, had to, like, force him into seeing that. Should we mention the, like, rattlesnake uh, justice scene with the girl? (laughs) Yeah. Early on, we see that uh, Mike, the border patrol agent, is a little overzealous in his job. And he punches a woman who's trying to cross the border and breaks her nose. And uh, later, when they're on this journey, he gets uh, bitten by a rattlesnake. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones runs into some people trying to cross the border again. And he's like, this guy's hurt. Can you take him to a healer? And um, they're like, well, we know this woman. And it turns out that woman is the person whose nose he broke. And so she heals him kind of begrudgingly. Yeah. But as soon as he's, you know, feeling better, she breaks a coffee pot on its nose <laughs> which is sort of like yeah that feels about right she doesn't pull any punches like hey his foot looks nasty it's black she heats up a blade and just stabs where the snake bit yeah. he passes out from the pain Have you ever passed out from pain before? No, I lead a charmed life. <laughs> oh my God. I felt some pretty intense pain. And, you know, there's studies that redheads feel pain more intensely. So, you know, I feel pain pretty intensely. Um, Whoa. Rewind it a little bit there. Go into these studies real quick. There's a study that was done, like, I a don't know, single study? As far as I know. Was it peer reviewed by a batch of redheads? <laughs> Peer reviewed by blondes and brunettes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the study was uh, showed that people with genetically natural red hair actually feel pain at a higher so level. So you are inferior. Uh, <laughs> actually, no. It just means that we have a higher tolerance for pain since we experience it so strongly. Mm. If we got the same splinter in our finger, I would feel more pain than you would. Mm-hmm. How do you measure pain in a person anyway? This sounds like uh, clear anti-science rhetoric when you don't like the results (laughs) that you're getting. So go ahead, Roman government. I'm sorry, don't we have like a pro-redhead commander-in-chief right now? Name one redhead he likes. Isn't he redheaded? No, that is not red. What is it? It's not blonde. Garbage fire. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's not red. He, it is more of like a Mandarin, orange, you know. <laughs> it's whatever it is, it's not natural. No, so. it's it's not of God's green earth, that's for sure. <laughs> Speaking of uh, things that return to God's green earth, Melchiatus Estrada <laughs> eventually gets to where he's going. Well, I mean, in a way, Pete cannot find this town. Yeah, I, which I thought was weird. He gets to Jimenez, finally. He doesn't get to Jimenez. Like, he gets to, like, some other little, like, the closest oh, right. little village. Because, like, he's in one place. And he's like, yeah, this is supposed to be a little village outside of here. And there, no one's ever heard of it. Yeah. And someone finally says, like, the smallest little village of that description's like, over here. 
he goes there and he finds the girl from the picture. Like Melchiaz had given him a picture of his wife and his children. And she doesn't know who he is. Yeah. She has like a reaction. It's obviously her from the photo, but she's like, I don't know him. Yeah. And then she sort of is like, I don't want to... Later, I think she even says, like, I don't want to get in trouble with my husband. Which sort of like... You think they had a little affair? Well, I'm not sure if they had an affair or if that is sort of supposed to be some callback to Mike's character who brought his wife out to the border from Cincinnati because there was work, right? Like, Melchiatus left... If, if he was in a relationship with this woman in this town, he left her to go get work in the United States. You know, maybe there's, like, a parallel going on between them there. But there's also, like, the possibility that Melchiatus was just lying. It was like, I got this picture with this woman, and I'm in love with her, and I'm going to prove to her, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's definitely the impression that I got that, like, he just was kind of fascinated with her. I kind of got that impression too, which but is I, sad, I, which makes it a little I guess like, there is an argument that like, if you're going to draw a parallel between Mike and Melchiadas, that like they were both working at the border because that's where their work drew them to. Yeah. And it's not totally out of the question that his wife, Melchiadas' wife may have ditched him. It was five years. He'd been gone for five years. So, you know, yeah, she was pregnant. She needed money. She married some other guy who was willing to support her and her kids. Sure. I kind of saw that this time around as being a possibility. Yeah. I do still feel in my gut that it's more like Melchiatus was kind of obsessed with this girl. And yeah, that's kind of the way maybe that I feel she about did too. It. Maybe like they had sort of a romantic thing, but she didn't stick around. She wasn't yeah. going to stick around for him kind of thing. Yeah. There's nothing definitive about it, but that is that's the impression that I got from how everything played out. I mean, also it, it's paralleled with that they can't find this town that Melchiatus said that right. he wanted to be buried in. So it's like, well, the town doesn't exist, and the wife says that she doesn't even know who he is. So you know, what does that say? Yeah, I guess we we skipped over another important corpse part uh, where they're in that like little cave or cove, uh-huh. and Mike's like, "Hey, Pete." The ants are eating your friend. And Pete pours alcohol all over the head. Well, he tries to, like, pinch the ants. Yeah, and then they just crawl on him. And start biting him. So he pours alcohol over Melchiatus' head and then lights his head on fire. (laughs) It's tough because it's like he clearly still cares about his friend and wants him to get to this, like, place. But he, he also is aware that he's dealing with a corpse, mm-hmm. you know, cause he puts, uh, antifreeze in his body. He sets him on fire. At one point he tries to brush his hair and it just like comes out in the brush. So it's like, you know, he knows he's dealing with a corpse and I don't know how I do in that situation. That's kind of a really, that's why odd... I just leave you wherever you died. <laughs> what about, okay. Well, what about Lucy? What if she died in your home? Well, she doesn't have any last wishes. <laughs> But what would you do with the corpse? I mean, that's really hard. Would you just throw her in a glad bag? it. No, but like in the immediate, or would you call someone to be like, come take this thing away? Would you put I her in a glad bag? I can start a fire. I don't know. I thought about it a lot today because my cat's really old and I was like, he could die here. And I was like, I don't want to have to clean up the mess because, you know, they always say that like all the muscles relax, so you shit and like... I don't know. I was there when my cat passed away, and that didn't happen. So okay, I had death growing up, 
so to me, it's not like, oh my God, what do I do? I was like, no, you just, they're dead. They're not going anywhere. You have them cremated. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, what would you do in that situation if like a best friend of yours asked you then? So like you, you would just be like, I already told fuck you, you. Fuck it. <laughs> I will put you on the light rail to Beacon Hill and ask somebody on there to kick you off at that stop. <laughs> what a pal. What a pal. <laughs> Hey, I don't ask anything of you. <laughs> I definitely do not believe in an afterlife, so I yeah. would not. I'd be fine if my corpse just got kicked out at Beacon Hill. It's whatever. No, I'm definitely putting my money on that. I will not give a fuck what happens to my body. Like I, I have it on like my expired driver's license and things like that. It's like organ donor, donate body to science. If my license is lost, let this podcast be a record. Just do whatever you. <laughs> Because that's what people are going to do when I die. And they're like, what do we do with his bones? Pour over his podcast. Maybe he said something about his last wishes. For some reason, when someone else gets a grave, I'm like, oh, seems reasonable. But like me taking up a plot of land, like a six by three by nine plot of land or whatever. How pretentious of me. waste of space. Yeah. Uh, And I used to be like pro cremation, but I hear that's super like energy intensive and like yeah it, pretty, a it puts a lot of footprint. like chemicals into the yeah into the we all atmosphere. saw return of the living dead <laughs> yeah so like personally just like for my values i'm like hmm, i feel like donating my body to science is yeah like if my body's chopped up in some med student lab i feel that that's a worthy way for me to to go yeah i'm happy with being turned into compost which is an option hmm Throw me on a compost pile, wait till I disintegrate, and uh, make some flowers grow out of me. That sounds great. Yeah. Melchiodas eventually gets, like, eventually Jake finds this place that maybe is the place. I mean, maybe he just says, this is the place, and that's what we're done. It's just like Mel said it was. Got good water. And... That's the house. Garden. Right there. Hmm. See? Just like that, right there. I think he finds a place that he's like, this is what Melchiatas had in his heart when he was describing this town to me. How do you feel that this movie is as representative of the Western genre? It's pretty good. I mean, when I think of, like, American Westerns, I definitely think of rugged individualists, which this movie has, like, especially embedded in Tommy Lee Jones. I think of sort of American notions of justice. Mm -hmm. Like, watching a spaghetti Western versus an American Western, there's definitely different ideas of justice in them. Not that they both both don't deal with that but american westerns definitely have a a writing of wrongs aspect to them which this movie definitely has Mm -hmm. and i mean this movie definitely takes place like in like a frontier of sorts like this it takes place mostly in a land untouched by civilization it loves its landscapes which i think westerns really should so i think it fits in nicely to the american Western genre, which Tommy Lee Jones has directed another movie called The Homesman, which I have not seen. Oh, I haven't seen that either. Uh, but it's also a Western. Okay. Which also plays into my idea that Tommy Lee Jones is just actually a cowboy at heart. Yeah. How do you feel as Tommy Lee Jones as a director? Do you think he did all right? He's got an eye for it? 
Yeah, there were some really cool shots. I think overall the pacing was well done. Like I said, I think you could have edited out the wife storyline and the movie would have been just fine and it actually be a little shorter. I wouldn't say there's anything that really makes him stand out as a director, but he's got it down. My impression is that he's a very workman-like director. Yeah. Sort of utilitarian. He, he's not flashy. And he doesn't dwell on his own part that much. Mm-hmm. Like, watching it this time, I kind of realized, like, so, like, there's, you know, Mike Norton's story going on. And, like, you know, there's his story with Melchior's going on. And then there's, like, the Melissa Leo and, and Luann. And... Really, Tommy Lee Jones is just sort of a supporting role in each of those. But because that gives him the most screen time because he's in each of those storylines. Yeah. But it's not like the camera lingers on him or that he gets these big, you know, monologues or, right. or, or anything like that. Like it doesn't dwell on him as a character that much yeah so yeah it, he just strikes me as a very workmanlike director like the story is the star not him yeah and i almost feel like by making the title the three burials of melchiatus estrada the story is about mel mm-hmm. you know and it's about his redemption more than anything like it's not even about the fact that pete is bringing justice to mel it's that Mel deserves justice mm, mm-hmm. by making the title that that's what you're focusing on. And I think that was a smart, really empathetic move, mm, which I liked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I liked this movie uh, when I saw it first time 10 years ago, and I think it holds up really well. Yeah. I mean, the, the themes, like the subject matter, uh, I would say is, feels more relevant right now. Like, yeah. not, not even like, in this time period, but like within the last couple months. Yeah. That was an interesting part. I was like, this is a super topical movie, <laughs> but a uh, good first outing. Very strong. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready to leave this one and take a break, get a refresher, take a pee? I definitely need a fill up. Great. Well, let's do all those things and then we can come back and talk more about farting corpses. I can't remember that actress's name, but that's Dan Aykroyd's wife. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, I can't remember her name right off the bat, but, like, she just likes a guy with a sense of humor. You gotta lock that down. Yeah, right? Right? <laughs> no, Dan Aykroyd did all right for himself. Yeah. Bald, stocky guy. His own vodka. Yeah, the Crystal Skull vodka. Filtered through diamonds five times. Why stop at five? Why do more than one? Also, why diamonds? What do you do with the diamonds afterwards? Are the diamond filters good for life? God, I hope so. How often do you have to replace those? What do you do with them when they're filtered out? Yeah. Is that just like the the clearance bin at Zales? (laughs) It's like, (laughs) vodka filter diamonds, 1999. It's just a pile of them in a box. It's the ones Elizabeth Taylor wouldn't wear. (laughs) These have never brought me luck. R.I.P. 
Liz Taylor. Yeah, I kind of miss her. She was great. She convinced David Bowie to leave Los Angeles when he was a drug-addled crazy man. Really? Yeah. She was like one of his best friends out there. And she was like, you need to get out of here. I heard a story once about Montgomery Cliff getting in a bad car accident. Oh. And she was BFFs with him. Like one of the few people that knew he was gay. Mm-hmm. And she like visited him. She she was like near the scene of the accident or something like that. And like he was having trouble breathing and like couldn't talk. And she reached into his mouth and like his teeth had been crushed inside his mouth and like couldn't open his jaw. Oof. And she like fished all the teeth out of his mouth so he could like breathe and speak again. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound far out of character for her because she was, you know, like one of the first uh, celebrity AIDS activists. That's true. In the That's 80s. True. She was like, these are people who need help. And we lost Tab Hunter. Today, yeah. yeah. Well, we're recording today on his day of his death, but... Did you ever watch Tad Hunter uh, Confidential? Uh, no, I don't have enough essential oils around the house to watch <laughs> that one yet. It's good. I didn't know anything about it, but um, what a hunk. Oh, my God, yeah. Jeez. Oh, no. Babe and a half. We lost a, we lost a hot gay today. Schwing. <laughs> so, Matt. Yes. We're all going to die one day. <laughs> we are. That's true. And uh, sometimes it's good to be reminded of that. Sometimes you need to see a movie with a corpse in it. Well, I saw at least one yesterday. But was that enough to remind you? Did you need to see another one? Maybe I need to see three. <laughs> Let's just watch Tideland real quick. Okay. Pause the podcast. We'll come right back. Uh, that is one of the worst Terry Gilliam films. It's bad. Not, not great. But what movie is great? That involves a corpse. Well, you know what a great corpse movie is? What's that? Swiss Army Man. Directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Mm-hmm. Also known as The Daniels, as they've directed a number of music videos, but this is their first feature length. Mm-hmm. And really, like, they have not directed without the other one. Oh, okay. Like, they are a duo. A it's a package deal. And I was really hoping that when I was, like, researching this movie that there would be something, like, in the works, like a future project, uh, another, like, feature-length movie. Mm-hmm. There's not. And that's not entirely surprising to me because this movie is 2016, two years ago. This movie strikes me as something that is a genuine, from-the-heart production. Like, they made this coming from a very true-to-themselves place, and so it feels like... Yeah, I'm willing to wait until they find that next project that they feel true to their hearts about. So I kind of have this theory that a lot of directors, specifically male directors, their first full-length movie is sort of typically about a disaffected male protagonist. Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan did it that way. Darren Aronofsky did it that way. Sure. If I research it, I'm sure I could think the of The list others. goes on and on. <laughs> and in this instance, this is a movie directed by a pair of directors that's sort of about a pair of disaffected male protagonists. Part of me kind of feels like this is just like the story of the two of them a little bit. Sure. I can see that. I think it is a very male-dominated storyline. You could consider it masturbatory in a lot of ways. But I think the fact that it is two people, two men specifically, straight men, I'm assuming, working through issues of intimacy in a very constructive and loving way, 
I think it sets it apart. I don't think there's anything wrong with writing what you know. I think if you only write what you know, like write just based on personal experience or create something based on personal experience your whole career, that's limiting. Mm -hmm. But doing it once or for your first outing, I wouldn't call that masturbatory. I, I, I feel like that's breaking in your talents. Okay. Would you say that there is a fault in the in the idea that it's very male centric? <sighs> no, because I don't think that there's enough mainstream entertainment that shows heterosexual male intimacy the way that Swiss Army Man does. Oh, you couldn't have said it any better than <laughs> I could have. That's how I feel exactly. There aren't there aren't movies like this. There, I can't name one off the top of my head that shows heterosexual male intimacy that doesn't poke fun at it in a way that the audience is supposed to laugh at it. Like, we're supposed to feel the love that they feel. Yeah. Between each other more than any other kind of emotion. There's a sweetness to this movie, yeah. which you just don't get in movies that show heterosexual male friendship. We need more movies like this that show that kind of uh, tenderness between two men who may not be in love with each other in the romantic sense that, like, say, you know, I am with another man, but you can still have feelings for someone of the same sex with you that you're not attracted to. And I think that's important to see. A couple of years ago when uh, Captain America Civil War came out, there was all this like hubbub that like maybe Captain America and the Winter Soldier were like gay lovers. And like, that's why like they're so bonded. And this was just like a comment that I saw on Facebook. And someone said like, while like I'm not against like Cap and the Winter Soldier being gay, I would prefer it if they were just two straight men that like legitimately had just a caring for one another because I'm for all sorts of relationships being portrayed in mainstream media. And, you know, right now there's sort of a drought of just heterosexual men caring for each other in a non-sexual fashion. Yeah. And this is that movie. Like, this is two people who like genuinely love each other and it is not sexual. Yeah. One of them just happens to be a corpse. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to be at like the, the pitch for this movie. It's like, okay, so one's Paul Dano and he's stranded on a desert island. Like, okay, I'm on board with you. Like, we're good. Daniel Radcliffe, farting corpse. <laughs> who gave the thumbs up for that? <laughs> Who was like, okay, yeah, let's roll with this. Let's I'm green imagining, like this. Okay, so I'm imagining they got enough money to make the first 10 minutes of this movie. Okay. And then the, and somebody was like, you make your first 10 minutes, and if I'm on board, I'll, I'll green light the rest of it. And I think that, man, they must have just lucked out money-wise because it's like, you're either, yes, go, <laughs> keep going, or get the fuck out of my office because it was like December 27th in the A24 office and they're like oh god we're too profitable this year <laughs> we need to throw money at something in the next 72 hours hey hey don't you have those those guys who got that hey, farting yeah, corpse what, movie yeah what's that farting corpse movie you're talking about 
get those guys in here tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> we need to talk to them. I mean, so, yeah, it's insane. Like, the first 10 minutes, you see Paul Dano about to commit suicide. Before he does, his rope breaks. He sees uh, Daniel Radcliffe, corpse, on the on the beach. And that scene has, the like, a wonderful just little role reversal because he's, like, prepped, ready to die. Noose around his neck. He's ready for the great beyond. Uh-huh. Then he sees a glimmer of hope. In a dead body. slips. <laughs> And suddenly he's about to die, and he in that one moment that he sees what could possibly be a companion, he no longer wants to die. Yeah. And he's struggling for life then, and it's like he might die accidentally now yeah. after putting a noose around his neck and standing on a water cooler. Thankfully, the noose breaks, and he crawls over. Shoddy workmanship. <laughs> and then he... he talks to the corpse for a minute. I had always hoped that right before I died, my life would flash before my eyes and I would see wonderful things. But as I was hanging up there, I didn't really see much of anything. But I did see you. And I know, I know it sounds dumb, but I, I really thought for a moment that then maybe, just maybe, there was a reason that you Back to the noose. So he, he sets it up, and then that's when he starts seeing... Uh, the farts. The farts. And then he starts realizing that this could be a way to get off the island. <laughs> so if the, the farts and Melchiatas were symbolic or non-existent... The farts are all too existent in this movie. <laughs> oh, to be a sound designer on this movie. I mean, I did. So I did sound design with a few other guys for um, Scout's Honor, Badge to the Bone, starring mm. uh, Chris Kattan. Um, <laughs> Chris Kattan vehicle, check yes. Check it out. There is a long fart sequence that I unfortunately did not get to work on. My uh, The person I was working with, his name's Paul Miller. He's the one who did all those farts. And he did a choice job. <laughs> Honestly, so if you watch anything from that movie, watch the fart sequence. So when you saw Swiss Army Man for the first time, we were like, is this a Paul Miller joint? (laughs) (laughs) I know his fart work. (laughs) I was like, man, fart work this good can only be done by a handful of people. (laughs) I don't know. This movie's got a lot of farts, and the only person I know who can do fart sounds is Paul Miller. And he's booked through next December. (laughs) This is a good capper to our toilet theme season. (laughs) I'm glad that we ended on a high note. Something that really culminates our values. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so Paul, he, he, Paul, Paul Dano, Hank, realizes he can ride it, ride the corpse like a jet ski, which he does. And it's a very emotional moment. Like, it's a very exciting moment. The music build up to it is very cool. Um, he starts singing. Like, the music... I'm just going to say off the bat, the music in this is uh, a, a, a real propulsive force. Okay. Like, I think it really helps make this movie work because it'd be hard to sell it without the emotion being played by the music. The movie itself, I, and I have it in my notes here, it's like twee auteur. Because I feel like this isn't terribly far removed from, like, sort of, like, 
quirky, fun, garden state type movies. Yeah. I'm thinking like Wes Anderson or like yeah. um, Spike Jones when he did uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. yeah. It's not that far removed. You're right. And this movie is also twee, but like, I feel like this is like when all those twee filmmakers mature and start making real films. Yeah. I think this is very bold filmmaking and I can see it as very divisive filmmaking. I mean, not just because it's about a farting corpse and not just because there's like men kissing men and it's not a gay movie. Just the concept of like one living person and one corpse sort of, even if there was no farting, there was no kissing. I feel like it would be a tough movie to sell. But I think that's where this movie and The Three Bearers of Melchiatus Estrada really connect, is that, like, their friendship transcends death. God, you it's so gay when you say it. <laughs> in both movies, like, in the, the last movie, he's willing to carry this fucking stinking, rotted thing that's covered in ants miles on a mule to get it to its burial place and in this movie he's willing to ride it to safety despite the fact that it's disgusting i mean if we want to talk about like the symbolism of the corpses real quick in both movies both corpses like the relationship between the cadaver and the living person is representative of just to put it in your terms friendship to put it in my terms companionship okay in free burials it was definitely about companionship mm-hmm. like that and it was like that's all you have out here in you know the frontier yeah and it's rare right right like you need to treasure and you need to honor it sure and then here you you need to treasure it and you need to celebrate it yeah, is, is sort of what we're getting at here, and because, and like I, when I was at the top of this segment, where I was talking about like a lot of first-time directors will direct a movie about a disaffected male protagonist, and this is a duo of directors making a movie about two disaffected male protagonists. A lot of it makes me feel that like this is just the story of them, like. They get together, they're in their own little world, they create their own little creative bubble, and, like, this is how they kind of view each other, in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of companionship means being close enough to each other that you can fart in front of each other. <laughs> Do you think they fart in front of each other? Oh, yeah. You don't fart in front of me. What else are you hiding? Well, I don't have to fart now. I will next time. I'm comfortable with my farts. I own them. I just like to think- I always own my farts. I want everyone to know that I'm not a hider. I if I say I didn't fart, I didn't fart. If you look around and you're like, did somebody fart and it was me, I will hold my hand up and say yes. I also kind of think that this movie, the character of Manny isn't a real thing because like you get the impression that Hank is also sort of like maybe not all there. And I sort of this time was watching it thinking that Manny was sort of there to help him work through his issues more than anything. Manny may have been a projection, you know. And there's evidence to support that because, like, as he realizes things, Manny gets powers, you know. Yeah. Like, 
he he realizes that the first time we see him, you know, he's like, oh, I thought I'd see my life flash before my eyes with all these pretty girls and da da da, and that didn't happen. So he realizes that those aren't important things in life. What's important is maybe companionship. And that's when we see Manny start farting. And that's how he gets off the island. Because you know what? No man is an island. I also had ah! that. Ah. <laughs> I wish I'd written more of these down. But I feel like this movie is just built on moments like that. I guess like the main thing that all these revelations keep building to is that like there's always an amount of self-love involved. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all this talk about masturbation. Which there's a is, lot of talk about masturbation. Which is a form of self-love. You know, it's a way to make yourself happy, right? And, uh, you know, Hank doesn't like to masturbate because it reminds him of his mom. <laughs> and so now when you masturbate, you think about your mom. But Manny, no. Hank, Paul Dano, has to explain a lot of just humanity and human interaction to Manny. I mean, does Manny ever actually remember anything from his life that's not actually Hank's life? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. So that just, like, further proves that this is a projection. Yeah. He's teaching Manny not necessarily, like, what it means to be human. I mean, you could see it that way. But, like, just what are basic social human habits, tics, things like that. Yeah, it's not an alien or fish out of water story. It's more like <sighs> Anthropology 101. Man, I don't even know. Like, because it doesn't feel yeah, cause, like cause they, ET or something. No, because like they get that uh, Sports Illustrated magazine. Yeah. And Hank is sort of explains like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I like that. And he's like, before the internet, every girl was a lot more special. And he's, he starts explaining to Manny how. You know, you would look at these girls and sort of come up with a backstory. This is like romantic facade that you would project upon them. And Manny gets a boner. It's also like a homing beacon. Yeah. Like it's a compass or it's a... It's more like a little brother slash child of teaching of the of the world rather than like an alien. Yeah. Or it's sort of like, yeah, you're going to get a boner at some point in your life. And that's fine. And that's totally fine. He's like, Thank oh, God, I'm disgusting. No, 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 you're not disgusting. No, my body is disgusting. No, it's no. horrible. So- I'm sure we've all been there. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, granted, Manny's boner's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could see a lot of like women getting to this point and being like, I hate this movie. <laughs> it is kind of a boy movie. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of farts, and there's a lot of, like, unwanted boners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his boner, it's a little erratic, but it looks like it's got strength to it. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you tossed a ping pong ball at it, he could, like, could really hit, hit it, it back pretty, pretty far. <laughs> Yeah, no, I could get it back across the table. <laughs> I mean, you know how sometimes big dicks like don't stay like real hard the way you want them to. Tell me about it. <laughs> Manny's dick looks like you know it's like rock hard. Like mm-hmm. if you punched it, it would just punch you back. <laughs> it's like a fist. Sure, if that's your thing. If you want it like six inches and hard as a fucking rock, Manny's your man. Manny's your your corpse. <laughs> I do like that scene later on after they like get to the woman's house and uh, he's like, I used to be dead, but then he brought me back to life. 
and we were lost out there in the woods for a very long time. But we survived because I have special powers. Manny. Early on in the cave, when when he when Hank finds out that Manny like vomits water and like makes him vomit the water yeah. into a cup and like drinks it. Like I'd forgotten how like that specific segment played out, and I'm watching. And I'm like, that is so gross. <laughs> and then like Hank is like, this is the grossest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, but like, that's the th- so that is a point in this movie. Like he says that he's like, you're the grossest thing ever. And yeah. then once he says that, he stops giving water because it's like the whole point of Manny is that Manny's weird. Manny's a strange thing, but. He makes Hank feel less alone. Yeah. And then now it's Hank's duty to make Manny feel less alone, even though Manny is a fucking freak, a corpse that farts Farts. a lot and vomits water and does all this weird shit. And so there's sort of that interplay going on between the two. And I think even at that point, maybe it's, it's right around there is when Hank is like, how do you expect anyone to want to talk to you if you sound retarded? It's a good setup for how, like, the movie kind of climaxes. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of the thing, though, is, like, he'll if when Hank has realizations about loving himself, that's when Manny gets powers. Mm-hmm. And if he says negative things about himself or Manny, Manny loses those powers. Uh, yeah. So it's sort of like Manny is a metaphor for loving yourself. Because at one point when he almost does, like when we're talking about the kiss, when that kiss comes up and he doesn't do it, later they have to cross this huge expanse and Manny's like... It's like, I feel like even though I'm on top of you right now, touching you physically, there's something stuck in between us. I also feel like you have something to say, but you don't know what to say, and so neither of us is saying anything. And then it takes them... Falling from that height into the river, almost drowning because he's, you know, attached to uh, Manny. And he has to, like, say, I love you, man. Yeah. You know? And that's when the kiss happens. And it's like, he only gets those powers when Hank realizes that he loves him. Yeah, like, Manny's almost like an embodiment of Hank's insecurities in a way. But not like... In a bad way, it's like the more you overcome them, the closer you become friends with him. Yeah. There's something really just truly exuberant when they kiss. Like, they kiss, and there's nothing sexual about it, but it's super exciting. It breaks that thing that they were talking about just before they fell. Because it's like, this is the thing that was keeping us apart. And Hank, at that point, doesn't want to die without letting Manny know how much he cares about him. Yeah. And so this is the only way he can express that underwater. Mm -hmm. And when he does that, that's when he realizes that Manny's the thing that's not pulling him down to his death. Manny's the thing that's, like, bringing him up out of the water. Well, because, like, they kiss, and then, like, they kind of pull apart. And they look at each other and they kiss again. Yeah, because they both smile. Well, like he pulls apart and Manny's just like, I make bubbles. <laughs> yeah. Wait, it, it's a great looking underwater sequence too because like their hair is like fully like up oh, underwater. They're way underwater, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Manny, like when he smiles, like just it's just this geyser of bubbles coming out yeah. of him. And I don't know, there's it, it just, 
even though it's super cartoony, it re- really reflects kind of how excited the audience is. At least how I felt while watching it. Sure. I'm going to give a lot of credit to the music again. Like, the music really helps in that moment. But, like... But yeah. also, yeah, just the feeling that it's, like, he, he's not going to die because he showed love. Yeah, the, the music through the whole thing is, like, this, like, very accessible animal collective type. Yeah. You know, simple chords. But yeah. But cool looping and kind of funny, like, commenting on the movie. Like, when they do the popcorn thing, it's like, pop, 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 pop. pop, pop. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. The, the music's almost, like the Greek chorus of this movie in some way. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But uh, Hank uses Manny's farts to propel them out of the river. <laughs> and, like, they fully jettison out of the river. <laughs> There's also, like, as we go along and as they get closer to civilization, I don't know, I was thinking, like, maybe it's metaphorical, but also physically, like, he ran away from society to kill himself. We don't know a lot about why Hank was on that island to begin with. Like we don't know, nothing really leads up into that. But I, I feel like it was like a, a way to maybe kill himself or get away from society because he felt weird and didn't belong. Gets the corpse, and the the further along we get in the movie, we get more hints of civilization. So like you know, the first thing when he gets onto land is we see that like cheesy poofs bag. <laughs> Cheese puffs. Cheesy poofs is South Park. (laughs) Register trademark. And then, like, as, you know, these revelations come along, we get more things. Like, we get a chair, you know, and then there's, like, alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, the closer he gets to loving himself, the more we get of civilization. Yeah, and then when he starts talking about, like, the image on his phone of the girl on the bus... Like, that's when they're really getting close. Yeah. Like, that's when there's a lot of world building going on. Like, there's a little world building when Hank is like... Sometimes um, your, your, your fingers would be coated in orange after eating it. And your mom probably told you to wash your hands, but I bet you'd just lick it off when she wasn't looking. You know, we get to the point where it's like, he starts talking about, like, the girl that you'd see on the bus every day, and, like, that was... That, that kind of brings it to a different emotional level. Yeah. Like, suddenly we're in, like, mature emotion area, and, you know, it's clear that Hank didn't know how to deal with these emotions. Like, yeah. he knew how to lick the, the cheese puff residue off his fingers, but now we're, we're going into a realm that, like, not... He doesn't understand, and he can't necessarily explain. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he does explain it, but I think it's that he couldn't explain it previously. It's like he needed to explain it to someone else in order for him to understand it himself. Yeah. I, for one, believe that. Like, sometimes you don't know how you feel about something until you have to explain it to someone else. Sure, 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 sure. Putting words to an emotion really forces you to encapsulate it in a way that may make it less uncomfortable you know like sometimes you you feel like you're the only one who feels one way and then you you talk about it with somebody and you realize like oh when i actually put it to words it sounds like something i've seen in a movie Mm. or it sounds like something that a lot of people go through so sometimes you just have to say it out loud yeah and trying to get someone to empathize with you can put it in perspective as well yeah and hank is a 
I'm sorry, Manny is a great empathizer. He's sort of a therapist. Oh, he's he, such a neutral party. Yeah, he takes... He's not going to judge you. Yeah, and he takes the information Hank says and make takes it literally. Yeah. So he's like, so you don't like masturbating because it reminds you of your mom. It's like, technically, yes, that's true, but that sounds weird. Yeah. <laughs> but like, he's he's making he's making sense of everything that Hank is saying it's just in such a childlike, innocent way mm-hmm. that it makes it sound kind of silly. You can't just say everything that comes into your head. That's bad talking. To Manny, this is just what people do. Yeah. Like, this is part of human nature. And it goes the other way, too, where he's like, why don't people want to masturbate if it makes them happy? Yeah. Like, it, if masturbation makes you happy. Why don't people do it all the time? Really deconstructing it and having Hank having to defend, like, why don't people just masturbate all the time? Yeah. Like, it kind of pokes holes in, like, the why don't people masturbate all the time? Yeah. It, it's sort of like uh, Hank at that point represents society and Manny just represents id yeah in a lot of ways he's like well this doesn't make sense why are we why are we fighting against these things that make us feel good yeah and it's complicated obviously past yeah. that but the, it, i mean there's more to it than just yeah. why don't know. we fart on the bus yeah. you know at some point when hank is describing the bus like and how it works welcome to the bus this is how people like us get places if we're too poor to drive ourselves hello Hello, everybody. Buses are for people who don't know each other. They read books, they listen to music. And we all sing songs together, right? No, 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 no. The other people will stare at you if you sing, so you listen to your own music. Oh. Really looking at it from Manny's point of view, it's like, yeah, I don't know why we don't. Like, I like singing. Singing makes me happy. Yeah. Shouldn't we be singing? And that's sort of like Manny's thing, too, is he's just sort of there to make Hank realize how silly some of his insecurities are. Yeah, I mean, Manny has sort of a, like, autism spectrum view of things, where it's like, you have to explain, like, this is a accepted social norm. Mm-hmm. And, like, he, he'll he get it in that instance, but, like, just explaining what the norm is to him doesn't make sense to him. Yeah. Like, he understands the mechanics of these things, but he doesn't understand, like, the driving social impetus behind these things. And because he doesn't understand it, it makes Hank question why we do it at all. Yeah. Which I also think is representative of the directing duo. Like, if you're a creative duo, I could see those sorts of concepts bouncing back and forth, like societal norms being like, why do we do this? That's unnecessary. Yeah. You know, It definitely feels like college dorm room 101, but I mean, that stuff holds up in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like you can't just say like, well, society says so and then move on. Mm-hmm. Like you should really keep questioning these things. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's always an answer to Manny's questions, but they aren't ever satisfying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you can't just say like, well, it makes people uncomfortable. Like, well, why? why? Everybody farts, so why can't Everybody we f- poops. Why can't we? Yeah, why can't we fart and poop in front of each other? Yeah, at some point, like, uh, Hank is... <laughs> well, it's like a Bible that, like, he yeah. scribbled everybody poops into and explains, like... Poop is when your body takes everything it doesn't want and squeezes it out of your butt. Everything poops. There's a book everybody reads about it when they're a kid. People poop 
every day or extra when they're scared or sick or right when they die because uh, you shit your pants when you die. I like that subtle dig, by the way, before he wrote in there, like he was just going through the trash thing, like white people threw it away. And we got to the oh, Bible. This is empty. Like, this is old. This is old. <laughs> That's broken. That's empty. This is useless. Smelly. Old. I mean, there is this sort of recurring theme of trash in the movie. It's like, uh, you know, people throw out these things that are unwanted and... At some point, Manny's like, You're broken and empty and dirty and smelly and useless and old. You're like trash, right? Shut up! But I mean, it also becomes poignant when like the bear is pulling him away and he's like, when we die, we're just all going to turn into shit. The bear is going to shit me out and then we're all going to become shit eventually and it's all just going to mix together and become everybody's shit. This sounds kind of nice. Everyone's shit mixing. Because then someday some of your shit He's gonna meet up with some of my shit. And we'll have something to look forward to, you know? Yeah. And that is sort of like comforting <laughs> in a weird way. I mean that's I mean that's that's like the main thrust of this movie for me, is that it's always like Hank reaches a roadblock in loving himself and Manny finds a way to logically make him realize that he should love himself and then that's when manny gets the power to save him Mm, mm -hmm. so like and his powers become more and more the more that hank loves himself and it stops once he realizes that all these things that manny has been working for weren't for him he tells manny that the cell phone is his and the girl in the picture is someone that he pined for and at a certain point, it comes out that that's not accurate, that this is actually Hank's cell phone and that the image on it is a girl that Hank lusted for and projected yeah. all his feelings onto. But was too scared to talk to. Right. And that takes the wind out of Manny's sails. So like when the bear comes, or what did Manny describe it as? Like, There's a giant raccoon and it's eating our food. And the bear becomes problematic for yeah. the duo because Hank fills Manny's mouth up with rocks and wants to use him as like a machine gun type thing. And Which he's done in the past. Yeah. Used to kill a different raccoon. Or maybe the same raccoon. And a bird. A bunch, of, a bunch of fucking animals. <laughs> but when he tries it this time, like the rocks just spill out of his mouth. Like nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And it's because Manny feels that he's been lied to for this whole time. Right. And if you're keeping my metaphor going, that's when Manny realizes that Hank didn't love himself enough to at least try to talk to this bus girl. Yeah. So. Or to just be honest with Manny. Yeah. That he just feels that, like, Manny felt that, like, he was actually friends with Hank, and now Hank's been lying to him about these major things the whole time. Yeah. If my best friend keeps his farts from me... What else is he hiding from me? Watching the movie last night, like, when the bear was, like, coming at him, like, this was also when they were bearing their souls to one another. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past this movie. Because, like, this is when, like, suddenly Hank is being, like, all cards on the table with Manny. And we see him showing affection for Manny again, but in a way that isn't romantic. Like, we've gone past romantic love. It's just like, I love you, and I want to be... Because, like, they even, I think, at one point are like, we don't need that girl. Start a band. 
And we could build a house in the trees. Yeah, with a home movie theater system. And a recording studio. Yeah, we can sing songs as loud as we want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah you and me. Yeah. As he's getting pulled away by this bear, he's able to say, like, you're my best friend. Mm-hmm. That's what kind of, like, gives Manny, like, the power to become semi-mobile. Yeah. Manny can move, but only with the help of Hank. And it's like once Hank really needs help and lays it all out for him, then suddenly Manny can, he has limited mobility. It's it's an event in the movie, the (laughs) fact that like Manny can suddenly do something on his own. Mm -hmm. And uh, saves him from the bear. Yeah. Using his farts. Using his farts. And they end up uh, at a house in this town and it turns out to be that girl on the bus. Mm-hmm. That's when that little girl comes out that we talked about earlier, and, and this is and like that's when like when reality kind of comes in. Yeah, and it's it doesn't hit all at once. Like you don't really know where reality starts and ends. Mm-hmm. Like the movie's just been the two of them. Like you don't really know. Like is Manny just a projection of Hank's psyche? Is this a real fanciful thing? Like, we're suddenly encroaching upon the real world here, and we, the audience, don't know, will Manny be able to talk in this reality? Like, will he still do the same things? And it doesn't really look that way. Yeah, it seems really ambiguous because the little girl, like, is talking to them, but her questions could easily be directed towards... Hank. I just a Halloween. Eventually, the mom comes out, and she's at first scared, but she calls and gets some help coming. And that's when, like, police come, and the news people come. Local Eastboro home. I'm not Manny. And your name? My name is Hank Thompson. We're here with Hank Thompson. And that's Manny. He saved my life with his amazing body. And he has these powers, and... They're the only reason that I'm standing here today, and I will not let them take him away. He wants to save the relationship that those two have. Well, and also the coroner, who is played by Shane Carruth. Did you notice that? No. I'm not kidding. It's in the credits. He uh, he's just like, I don't know, some nameless schlub. We don't know. He'll probably get some shitty burial like Melchiatus Estrada did. I'm sorry, (laughs) Melchiato Mexico did in uh, that other movie that those X-rated guys watched. Um, which was oddly pressing. Shane Kruth is a fan, yeah, definitely, <laughs> of, of the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, same story. And uh, Hank's just like, no, I'm not going to let them do this to you. And he kidnaps the corpse, goes sliding down a thing. Uh, Ravine gets to the ocean, and he's like, go, fart your way free. And he just won't do it. And he's like, I'll prove, you know, trying to prove to everybody that this corpse has powers. And then he realizes what he needs to do he needs to fart which I don't condone farting but in the context of the movie I'll allow it <laughs> it's the weirdest fart moment I think I've ever seen in a movie because it actually it means a lot not only is he saying like I have nothing to hide but also that I need you right now <laughs> it, it, it's sort of a UBU moment but it's it's in connection with someone else it's like we gotta be we almost yeah you're not weird because guess what i fart too (laughs) yeah 
it's saying that because there, there's all this whole thing about like not feeling weird right and that makes you feel more a part of people and, and like one of those things that makes you feel weird is farting in public yeah and, the scene right before that i like always kind of gets me a little bit it's like when mary elizabeth winstead whose character's name is sarah sarah and the dad who i think is just known as like hank's dad and the, like the police officers are like chasing after Hank and Manny as they like slide down the hill and they come across that like little oh, township that they made. Sure. And they see these things like, you know, this creation that they made is a reflection of Manny's psyche. Yeah. There's like a little log person that looks like his dad. The bus that the bus, Sarah rides on. Yeah. yeah and yeah, the yeah. notebook and things like that. And there's the wig and the dress and blah, blah, blah. And this also, like, makes me think that this is, like, a sort of a meditation on, like, the collaborative creative process. Because mm-hmm. it's, like, they made this, like, whole little creative world that is a reflection of their collective psyche a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when other people come across it, they see, like, where this inspiration came from. Also, it looks fucking weird it, it, out of context. It does look <laughs> fucking weird out of context. Like, when we see them in their own world it makes sense like we buy it but like when they beautiful even yeah oh uh, it's gorgeous looking with like the lighting they do in Mm -hmm. it but an outsider comes in they're like what the fuck yeah it looks real strange and like especially like when the dad looks at like his doppelganger it's like oh yeah that's a little weird yeah (laughs) like that's that's a little strange (laughs) and so then really like we're at the height of like everybody thinking that hank's cuckoo for cocoa puffs (laughs) yeah and I believe it too. Like yeah. it seems like that everything comes together to be like, oh well, obviously he's just been projecting onto Manny. This is he's been living in the woods, make, playing with a cadaver, and that's weird. The dad even says at some point, I think it's before he like slides down, he's like, "What are you trying to be like?" Or you know, "Don't be so retarded" or something like that. And he says like, "You shouldn't say that." And like that's kind of like what triggers him. To like go down like the side of the hill or yeah. down through the woods again. But so he farts to get Manny back uh, alive and doing stuff, and he doesn't at first. But then he gets hauled off, and like you hear farting again, and the officer's like, "All right, man, that's enough, okay?" That wasn't me. Because he claims it the first one. He goes, "It was me. I did it." But then, yeah, he farts. You start hearing farts later, and he's like, "That wasn't me." And everyone turns and see that it's Daniel Radcliffe. And it's like when he farts, his whole like bot body <laughs> vibrates. <laughs> and then he just like jets, fart jet skis off into the and into the thing, and everybody's just looking like, "What? Yeah, is happening?" And I don't really know how to take that ending, but I don't really care either. You know, yeah, like you, you could see it as like this is just how Hank wants the story to end Mm -hmm. like that's totally a reasonable thing you could also view it as like oh no this is like manny farting off into oblivion yeah (laughs) so and i don't really care like that that doesn't matter so much to me as like this feeling i can't believe i'm saying this i think that the fart moment that (laughs) hank does is the emotional climax of the movie like yeah him farting and admitting that like i'm weird (laughs) I fart too uh-huh. is the moment of him like loving himself. It's another way of saying I love me and I'm 
okay with y'all thinking that I'm weird. It's such a solid movie, though. Like, it's if you oh, can get past the fucking farting no, corpse. It really is. So I didn't know much about this movie and then until a friend of mine whose, like, opinion I really trust on movies was talking about. He's like, oh, what am I going to go, like, see this weekend? Swiss Army Man? I was like, what's that? And he goes, oh, it looks terrible. Watch the trailer. You'll never see it. So I watched the trailer. I'm like, that looks terrible. <laughs> but then I, like, looked up some reviews. I'm like, oh people actually like this movie and i really had this like i gotta know for myself like i gotta get to the bottom of this on my own terms and i went and saw it and i was like that was a great movie see yeah i'm i'm kind of the opposite where i was like hmm daniel radcliffe plays a farting corpse well you got me a farting (laughs) corpse it's an a minus movie at worst (laughs) i have to investigate no matter what See, if I was the producer with gobs of money, I'd be like, stop right there. <laughs> How much do you need? Can you do it in Here's six a blank weeks? check. <laughs> you just fill in the amount. I didn't ask this question during three burials because there's just no good answer. Hit it or quit it. Daniel Radcliffe. In this movie? Yes. Quit. Really? I'm not going to fuck he's a not corpse. En- he's alive enough, though. Paul Dano kisses him. Would you kiss him? I mean, if I was uh, symbolically trying to find some self-love while I'm drowning, perhaps. Well, what better way to self-love yourself... Look, I have many ways that I self-love myself. They all involve closed curtains, lots of candles, essential (laughs) oils. (laughs) I have a whole tackle box of appliances that help me through it. Look. Yeah? I'm going to end this on a different (laughs) note. I am surprised at how well these movies went together. And I didn't know that lugging a corpse around could be such a metaphor for friendship. But if... Anything, I want you to know that I feel like I'm lugging your corpse around all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if I'm riding anyone to freedom, it's you. <laughs> I mean, in Melchiata is like, it was definitely that like responsibility is a burden. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was definitely what it had. Whereas in Swiss Army Man, it, it was that friendship is freedom in a way. Yeah. That it, uh, you know, is, is is the key to opening up possibilities, I guess I should yeah. say. So it's like, even though both movies approach the idea of companionship in really radically different ways, like, the corpse sort of played the same part in both movies. Yeah. It was just your view of companionship. I I never thought you'd say such beautiful words about a corpse. <laughs> Would you like to hear what's coming up in two weeks? Yeah, what's coming up in two weeks? Next week is going to be our season nine yeah. premiere. I want to do something crazy. We're bringing a guest on for the first episode of what? a season. We've never done that before. Nope, nope, nope. And uh, this time I'm also letting the guest choose the movie, which we have oh, done before. But... So tricky. Yeah. Okay. So we're bringing on a friend of mine, Jessica Baxter. 
has made many movies, writes about movies uh, for many internet outlets. Great taste, knows her movies. She's she's going to be a good guest. She's chosen a pretty primo movie. I think you're going to be excited about it. She has decided that she wants to talk about Wild at Heart, a oh, David Lynch movie. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. She's yeah. a self-proclaimed Lynch fan and has a theory that she's uh, planning to float of a unified Lynchiverse, which I cannot wait to hear about. Oh, uh, that'll be a good uh, uh, cherry popper for season nine. I can't wait. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Jessica Baxter, bring in the Wild at Heart. Ooh, we haven't done a Nick Cage film yet, have we? Mm-mm. Or Laura Dern. Oh my god, we didn't even talk about Jurassic Park, by the way. If you don't know Jurassic Park, you don't know shit. And I'm a firm believer that Nick Cage is a fantastic actor. He just needs the right director. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those instances where like, he had the right director with him. Save it for the pod. Okay. 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 (laughs) Let's plug our junk and get the fuck out of here. Okay. Follow us on Twitter, at XRatedMovies. Lots of good stuff. You'll see the pictures from us making Corpse Survivors tonight on there. Follow us on Facebook at Rated X Movies. You'll probably see the pictures of us making Corpse Revivers on there. Go to our website, xratedmovies.com. You can read all about us making Corpse Revivers on there. And if you want the recipe for Corpse Revivers, email us at x.rated.movies at gmail.com. You can get the recipe for Corpse Revivers by emailing us there. And, of course, leave us love on any place that you get your podcasts. We'd love that, actually. (laughs) That will revive our corpses. That will revive our corpses. Other than that, be here in two weeks for Wild at Heart. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you then. (laughs) 